And welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. My name is George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Elaine Chang. We had a lot of fun talking digital transformation with her. Yeah, this lady walks the walk. Um, you know, CIO and talking heavily about how to get uh, cooperation and collaboration across an entire global organization and really, um, I don't know what the word is, it is transform. I mean, they completely overhauled their internal IT infrastructure and all in service of doing better by their customers who are their members. So uh, without further ado, we'll get right into it. And this is Elaine Cheng. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. I am George Comedy with Safeguard Cyber. I am joined by Ashley Stone, also from Safeguard Cyber. Hello. And today we have Elaine Chang, the CIO and Managing Director at the CFA Institute. Welcome aboard. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I am honored. Great. Um, for our listeners who don't know what CFA is. It's a it's a big institution here in Charlottesville. I have a lot of friends who have passed through its doors. Can you summarize what your organization does? Sure. CFA Institute is the leading uh, professional organization for individuals and investment management. And we lead uh, the investment management profession by establishing standards for both knowledge and skill set in the industry we provide the um, CFA exam for about 300,000 candidates a year to take, um, which proves their professionalism in the investment management field. And then we continue to provide ethics standards and ongoing continuing professional development for people in investment management. Yeah, well, ethics and financial management sounds like <laughs> something that just the, what, yes. just what's needed, <laughs> yes. just what the yeah. doctor ordered. Yeah. So thank yeah. you, thank you for your service. <laughs> it's exactly what we do. <laughs> um, so in our uh, research ahead of this interview, we saw that you were working at M and T Bank up north, and so you made the the leap from a certain kind of financial institution into what is essentially a, a nonprofit or education mm -hmm. facility. So I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit how you made that journey or the motivations or, or sort of what drove you to make that decision um, other than, you know, moving from Warm the great weather. white north to, to, <laughs> to the south. Which nothing against Buffalo, by the way, Buffalo is a fantastic place to live. Um, yeah. So it actually, there were multiple reasons for the change. Um, I had been at M&T Bank for about 16 years, so a long tenure for for probably almost anyone, probably anyone who's under 30 listening to me now is like, I can't even imagine, which is, is, is fine. Um, but I think the transition was a lot about trying something new and uh, getting outside of a comfort zone. And um, I had missed some opportunities early in my life, um, particularly when I was in college, to take chances. I uh, sort of did the more traditional route and um, I think really missed some opportunities around exploring the world and getting to know, um, you know, people and cultures and experiences outside of the United States. And I really wanted that opportunity. 
So I moved to CFA Institute um, for that experience. It's a global organization. We have offices across the world. Uh, we serve many different markets and many different individuals. And you have to learn and understand those particular groups and cultures and needs. And I just thought that would be an opportunity that I couldn't miss. Oh, that's a, I mean, yeah, it's a fantastic answer. I spent most of my twenties, uh, broke and traveling, uh, which I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, tra- which see, I, that's yeah, the experience yeah. I didn't do. And yeah, I, would, I, I wouldn't, good I would, for you. I wouldn't trade that experience, but I will say now I would appreciate being able to travel because I have more money. <laughs> so you can just do more things, maybe travel in a little bit more comfort. Well, what's nice too, I think, about working in an environment that's global is you get underneath this sort of tourism, right? Now you're working with people and you you do get a deeper sense of who they are, why, you know, what what's different about those particular parts of the globe. And so. did, did you go into MNT as a, an information? security professional or in the sort of under the CIO, or is that something that you changed to while you were there? So I, when I started at M&T Bank, I went into the technology division. I was actually a project manager there. Um, when I was at M&T, I sort of switched between business roles and technology roles for the 16 years that I was there. It was kind of in technology, out of technology, in technology, out of technology. So um, I, I had a very, you know, had a varied career when I was at M&T. All right, cool. And at uh, CFA, we know that a big initiative that you drove there was uh, a huge technological overhaul of both their infrastructure and also migrating a lot of services to cloud architectures. So obviously this points to uh, CFA's desire for digital transformation, which I think is both clear and also cliche, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we're we're (laughs) interested in what is your take on what digital transformation means from like implementation standpoint? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's it is definitely a, a a pretty frequently used term these days. Um, but I, sometimes I think we forget that transformation literally means change. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're really not changing much, and it's it's actually technically, I think if you look it up in you know the the, the dictionary, it's like change of form. So it's some sort of substantial change, not just you know from from you know one small change to another. So when we embarked on the transformation. We really set about saying we need change at several different layers. So we said we're going to start with the underlying process. Are we taking a look at all of the things that we're doing today and stepping back and saying, do we need to do them? Or why are we doing them? Are they serving our customers in any way, shape, or form? And then we changed the experience. We were committed to making sure that every experience that we were shifting um, was changing as well. And yes, we changed technology. <laughs> but I think those other two elements were where we really wanted to see the change. And I think, you know, we have been seeing that change. Yeah, I think that's a good point that if the you should agree on what it is you want to change, like the principles or the processes, and then apply the technology to right. that. Because what we've seen is anyone who who is just embracing the technology side, you just kind of become one of many vendors and it's hard to really demonstrate value because it's not fundamentally altering mm-hmm. like the, the underpinning of what they want to change. So that actually leads to another question, which is 
digital transformation by its very definition touches many different stakeholders in an organization. You can't change processes without crossing offices or departments or whatever. So um, I guess leading that charge, how did you get buy-in from those different departments? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sometimes our CEO likes to say that we've changed every single process at CFA Institute through this. Every single person's been touched. Every, you know, every, there's not a customer that we haven't impacted in some way, shape or form. So you're right. It is very broad. Um, we had to start with selling, you know, the vision and then helping them be involved in setting that vision. So we, we spent the first, um, you know, couple of weeks or, or so on, this is what we're trying to do and trying to give them a picture of that, um, that they could visually glom onto, mm -hmm. you know, so they could see it and, 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 um, you know, there's there's that really famous saying, like, if you want somebody to build a boat, don't tell them how to, you know, put wood together, but give them a taste for the sea. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's what we we tried to do is give a sense for this is what we're going to look like when we get to the end. Now, that can be dangerous, too, <laughs> because along the journey, you, you know, things change. You might not ultimately be able to get to the end exactly as you described it, but it certainly gets people on the journey. Right. And also, I guess, you're making them feel involved. So it's not like... um this is the place where we want to get to how do you think your department can help us get there rather than this is where we're going come mm -hmm. hell or high water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's go back to bringing in these other stakeholders. We have, we've have a lot of enterprise level clients who are doing the same thing in terms of trying to change fundamental processes or how they go to market and trying to apply technology to do that. In their conversations, um, we have found that sometimes it's just some folks dig in or are resistant to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And short of just saying, you know, uh, get in line, which isn't really like a great management strategy, I guess, could you speak to, did you encounter resistance or how did you overcome mm -hmm. that or, you know, yeah. circumvent it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely we, we encountered, um, a resistance. And I think encountered it along the way, actually. Sometimes at the beginning, they were like, yeah, let's do it. And then when we started getting into it, uh, and the the reality of change was occurring, they were like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't really mean it. <laughs> you know, so part of it is just tenacity. Mm -hmm. I mean, just it's like the daily blocking and tackling of, okay, I understand you have a concern. Let's talk about it. Let's get it out on the floor. Let's see what we can do about getting you to a place where you're comfortable with where we're going. And um, I think that is about as a as a leader and with your teams, just really listening right? Really mm. listening to your, the other stakeholders in your organization around where their fears and concerns are and letting them air that out. Because I think sometimes that's all they really need, right? Like they need to air it out. They just and need like to vent. Them, yeah. yeah. And then talk through, okay, what can we do to get you to, to a place where you can be comfortable with where we're going? Um, and I think that happens on a micro basis. Like sometimes it's not the, the, the beginning big kickoff, but it's in the trenches. Um, and in the, you know, when you're working with your finance team and they have a new way to reconcile, I mean, it's just in mm -hmm. the trenches with them. Yep. And that just takes a lot of just the, the tenacity of like every day you're going to, you know, you're going after it. Right. But I think the, yes, but the only way you're going to get through that uh, slog is 
if you have if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel (laughs) yeah for sure i mean you do have to be able to see the light but know that you're in a slog too Mm -hmm. i mean you know i think sometimes there's no there's no magic in a way to some of this stuff right and some days it's going to feel bad you know some days you're gonna be like i feel like i'm losing but you know just get through that Mm -hmm. and and you're gonna get up on the other side right cool all right well um Let's talk about the other side. So we, you did the cloud migration. You overhauled the CRM infrastructure. Um, sh- other than just sort of the numbers and the KPIs, can you speak to the larger business impacts of those technological implementations? Like you had a grand vision. How close did it adhere to that vision? Any other um, ways that you measured success? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, um, we ha- we're measuring success around, um, particularly like our customers, the end customers experiences and, and how much, um, their satisfaction with their experience, their digital experience with us, um, is, is, is improving. And some of that is in a very, you know, some of the very simple experiences. So renewing your membership with CFA Institute, you used to go through, you know, take like 20 minutes, you'd go through, a, you know, about 20 screens. We've, and we've cut that in half. So now your experience can be a lot faster. Um, we've, um, we've been able to, we created a, a mobile app for members so that their experience is always in their pocket, but also because our members tend to be international as well. They travel quite frequently for their roles. And um, we wanted to make sure that they understood the value of a global membership by very simple things. If I am a member and I typically live in New York City, but I happen to be in London for business, I can on my mobile app see who are other CFA members here in 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 London, can I get connected with the London Society? Can I go to an event? Oh, they're having an event tonight. Great, I want to get connected and make contacts here. So those are the things that we've been able to, you know, really do with our with our our members. And we've been able to also do things that are great from a technology perspective. So by moving most of our um, infrastructure to a cloud environment. We've been able to reduce. We, it used, you know, we used to have a disaster recovery plan that mm-hmm. was like three days. You know, like that's you know, a little long, <laughs> which is long. <laughs> like God forbid something actually happened. And I mean, everyone knew it was a well-known fact. You know, it wasn't. Um, but um, you know, now we're at hours. Right. So, I mean, those are the things that have made, you know, I mean, hopefully, God willing, we'll never have to use that at all. But if we do, then it's going it, to, you know, that recovery will be much more significant. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I could jump in here with all those lovely buzzwords, uh, flexibility, agility, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but yes, it sounds like, but right. ultimately like the, the end user experience mm-hmm. is the, is the improvement. For there. sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the, um, the actual implementation of this grand transformation. I want to step into your department specifically. Mm -hmm. So I read that you had established like a relationship management sort of liaison to help be the diplomat between it and other business teams. Could you speak a little bit more about the thinking behind that role and how that role actually functions? Because I think that speaks a lot to, um, what we touched on in terms of gaining buy-in from other mm-hmm. from other stakeholders, mm-hmm. if you have a dedicated mm-hmm. di- diplomatic force going out mm-hmm. to different parts of the company, yeah. So we 
established the relationship management role very early in my tenure at CFA Institute. It's actually something that I used to do at MIT oh, as well. And it's a necessary, it's so necessary because that individual is then responsible a hundred percent for making sure that whatever the needs are of that companion, you know, your peer organization, um, whether it's the finance team or the sales team or, you know, one of the product teams that they have what they need, they're getting what they need done. It's they're, they're like the advocate. They are, um, the relationship manager will learn that business, will understand the needs that they um, have, will be able to help them translate that into technology, will be able to bring how technology is changing and where it can add value to match those needs. And then most importantly, be able then to advocate to get that work done in um, technology and follow up with where things are at. Like, yes, we have this piece and yes, it's going to get done. Or, you know, in some cases we can't get it in, but here's how we're going to try to, you know, find a way. Or um, if there's a problem going on, I've got your problem. I'm figuring out how to get your resolution. So that's, that role is, is, is very critical. Um, did, were the relationship managers, was that a relatively like flatly organized team? Mm -hmm. So everyone sort of like, if I'm the relationship manager for finance and this one speaks to marketing, you said they could argue for the priorities of those, but if they're sort of relatively equal, how do you then decide what projects get precedent? Yeah. I mean, the, um, every organization is going to decide how they allocate, you know, IT funds or mm -hmm. IT resources. And we've done it a couple of different ways since I've been at CFA Institute. We, we change every, every once in a while. Um, sometimes um, we'll have a, 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 a group of business stakeholders that will actually help with some of that prioritization and they'll kind of war amongst themselves around it. Right. Let, them, um, <laughs> let them fight it out and then we'll, we'll implement what yeah. they decide. One of the ways that we've um, recently used that I think actually becomes a little bit more effective is we at um, the leadership team of the organization make some decisions about uh, large buckets of allocation and then gives those to the business lines and says, okay, you can then decide. So that that's how we work. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think my, experience of IT departments has usually been either like a central ticketing system that is opaque to me outside the department. You know, I submit the ticket and then I don't really know how it gets decided upon other than the, you know, the JIRA comment that I get back. <laughs> like this isn't a priority. Um, or Which feels awesome, doesn't it? Yeah, when you get that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Then I feel like IT is on my side. Um, or it's argued at the top, you know, like mm -hmm. the the department that I'm in decides on the things that it needs. And then it is up to the head of that department to then have the discussion with the head of it. So yeah, this sounds like a much more sustainable strategy because in terms of shifting needs, shifting priorities, um, just having boots on the ground to know that, you know, marketing feels this pain point, but finance really needs this. I think that's, that's a smart strategy. And I think you know, it's always going to be challenging because there's never enough, technology resources. Right. Um, but the relationship manager plays a big role in just communicating too, because you don't get a Jira ticket back that's yeah. like, you know, sorry, you're you're out of luck. It's really about, you know, maybe you can't do it right now, but this is why and I want to explain to you. And then here's how, here's where we go next. And that makes a big difference. Yes. Yeah. I think for all the uh you know uh what is the smoothing of friction that technology can do, such as like a centralized centralized ticketing system uh, it does matter if somebody comes to you face to face and can yeah. just tell you and talk to you like, yeah. a, you know, a person. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so uh, CFA has been this grand vision towards modernizing and improving services for your members. So I was going to ask, given that we are a, a cybersecurity company and um, the high-profile cyber incidents that have hit the financial services sector mm-hmm. as a whole, is CFA or what do you see CFA's role in educating its members about you know the basic cybersecurity best practices? Because I know a lot of your members, either they work inside of organizations or they are independent uh, advisors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one area where I feel like maybe we don't even do as much as we we could or should here. Um, we, We definitely take information security incredibly seriously. And our members do as well, because they do, as you point out, work in financial services firms for the most part. So mm-hmm. they really have some responsibility, probably even more than 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 perhaps we have. But we are also an organization about setting standards and high standards. And that's one thing that we've start, you know, we 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 believe in, whether it's about mostly it's about financial transparency and transactions and so forth. But we also think it's about how you protect data. Right. That's a fundamental Mm -hmm. element of being able to provide financial services or any services. So we take it very seriously. Um, We don't necessarily translate that into a lot of education of our members, but I think that's something that we're probably in the cusp of starting to explore, especially because the intersection between information security and data privacy, which is, I think, always been there, but is increasing in its in its um, the, the, in its importance, I guess you could say, and um, maybe maybe its understanding as a global concept is, is also increasing. And and you know we again work in markets like in Europe where the um, GDPR rules are really having a play at how people are thinking about data. And I think as organ you know one thing that organizations don't do enough of I think is really think hard about the data that they need versus the data they just collect. Ah, uh, good distinction. <laughs> and <laughs> it is a challenge, but it's a discipline that I think you know we're very we, this is a battle that we actually fight quite in, uh, often internally with our our stakeholders internally, which is do you really need that data? Because if is it you a don't, need to have or a nice to have? <laughs> well, and, and I mean, so, yeah, I think in a lot of cases it's nice. They're like, we think someday we might use that. Mm-hmm. Really? Well, if you're not going to use it, then really we should not be collecting it. And we've been um, very, very um, strong about the conversations that we have around this. And I think as a result, our organization has learned. That's not something that we've necessarily extended out to our members, but I think it might be something in the future that we do because we've talked a lot about data privacy being part of the elements of standards that we think we need to consider as investment management professionals. Mm, Excellent. Um, Okay. So I'll pivot now to, to that other word that we discussed, which is digital, uh, less in transformation capacity, but more at the board level. So we're seeing uh, more digital, quote unquote, roles being created at the C-suite level. We have chief digital officers, chief data officers. Um, how do you see these positions or these offices uh, working with or against the more traditional CIO, uh, CISO mm-hmm. offices? I think in most cases, when there is a 
chief digital officer um, that has been identified, that it is because the organization itself, and I think maybe more like the business lines of the organization, haven't really understood that ability to take the opportunity of technology to change their products or their offerings or their service. And so that digital officer is put in place to really kind of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe work for the CEO and and be that uh, evangelist and, 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 and probably more than evangelizing, sitting down with product owners and saying, this is how I see things differently. And can we, can we help you get there? I think that there are probably as many CIOs doing that today as there are, you know, chief digital officers. Mm-hmm. And I think that when the CIO is successful at that, you don't really need a mm-hmm. CDO. Um, and um, but if the CDO is in place, they're just going to partner with the CIO. They're sort of taking the place that some of the business teams would be. So I, I think I don't think we've you know there was a worry probably like five years ago or four years ago, like oh no more CIOs. Uh, it's just going to you know, but I, it's never really re- the reality of that. I don't think has ever right. shown up. And probably in the cases I'm going to guess where there is a CDO as opposed to, you know, working with a CIO, my guess is those CIOs are like, thank God. <laughs> like, yay. Yes. You, um, you run that for me. <laughs> you so. help me. Yeah. Get, get um, the ideas on the table and I will help uh, work with you to implement them. That would be my guess. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't have a, I haven't done a survey on it, but that would be my sense. Okay, great. And then, um, so I want to uh, change uh, tracks here. Um, we'll, we'll conclude with the question that we ask all of our guests about information security, and then we're going to move on to um, our, our discussion about diversity that we started before we hit record, <laughs> um, which is uh, now that you've spent as much time as you have in information security um, and you're close to uh, technological implementations, um, what scares you the most? What keeps you up at night with respect to information security? Mm-hmm. And it, it could be your organization or it could just be trends at large. Yeah. Um, I think that and nothing like really terrifies me, you know, I mean, and I don't mean to say that we're not concerned or we're always on the watch or, you know, but I think you can, um, the, the, being in a panic or being, you know, like up at night is mm-hmm. not very productive, right? It, it, it's not a good way to approach what you're trying to do. I mean, I think you need to be very logical and thoughtful about what you're doing around information security. You need to think about where are all the vectors, where we have risks, how are we mitigating those vectors, and then continuously looking at, is my program running the way I think it's supposed to run? If you're doing all those things, then you should be able to sleep at night. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not at risk, but, um, you know, you should have most of, of, of what you've got covered. And I think that's probably a better way to go about it than, than you know, that I'm, I'm terrified at night. It's just, right. It's not, it's, I mean, I know why you asked the question and lots of people do. My mom, you know, I often get asked that question, but I just don't, I, I think you can't look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, this is why you have, uh, you know, without fear on that mug, because we don't really believe that, that being afraid is a sustainable way to drive business um, because the easiest 
way to get over that fear um, or to indulge that fear is to just like crawl up in a ball and say no. <laughs> and that's, right. that's, that's like, that, do yeah, it either good, ignores right? the realities of yeah. what the business imperative is. Like we need to embrace more social media or we need to migrate to a cloud environment. Um, so you just don't get anything done uh, mm-hmm. in a fearful manner. Mm-hmm. Um, back. Um, okay. So let's, uh, ask the inverse, which is, um, what gives you the most hope from an IT perspective? I think technology is all about hope. You know, I think that's why it's so fun to work in this business. You know, there's almost nothing it can't do. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely an idealist. Um, and I actually get a little bit, um, sort of cliche around this one because I feel like technology is going to like solve a lot of the world problems. Like I really, really believe that technology so far has proven to be the thing that brings us together as a world. Right. And I mean, technology in its broader sense, right. Airplanes and, Mm -hmm. you know, like think about now how much we know about each other as cultures and how less of a frightening thing, you know, a different part of the world seems. Yes. I, I, you know, uh, the news cycle is troubling to any parent, but I try to (laughs) remind everyone in my family, like, Believe it or not, now is is the best time to be alive because you're not going to die from a cold, you know, and you can leave your village without being f- afraid of <laughs> bandits, you know. So right? it's like, like, I mean, like fundamentally, like, you know, yes. you know, you, you break an arm, it's not going to be like the end of you know everything for the rest of your life so right yeah no i just read you know cancer's down by like 25 percent or something like that i mean the things that are happening especially in you know um, biotechnology or you know like that kind of stuff is is amazing to me but i think also it's this continued communication and bringing groups and the world closer eventually that is going to make a big difference and i mean we don't see it yet i know there's still a lot of strife um people that still don't see things eye to eye lord knows that's definitely true here in the united states but i definitely think we're heading in in the right direction and technology will enable that yeah i have to i have worked in technology for a long time but uh i'm a bit of a luddite at heart but i I had a friend describe it to me better because I have some purist impulses. His interpretation is that technology is, you need to think of it as a force, right? It can be, it cuts both ways. Let's take gravity. I really love gravity because I'm not spinning off into space. But if I, you know, fall out of a plane, I'm really not digging gravity at that (laughs) point, right? So that there are these two sides to every technological solution. I can, you know, we have... uh, disinformation and and fake news on Facebook. But at the same time, you know, on WhatsApp, I can text my relatives in Brazil. When I was growing up, we'd have to like wait months for a letter to arrive, you know? So (laughs) yeah, I I take your point. Now I want to pivot to uh, tell our listeners about CWIT or Charlottesville Women in Technology, um, which is a group that you're a part of here in Charlottesville. So for our wider listeners, could you uh, just take a moment to explain the organization and and what its aims and goals are? Mm -hmm. Sure. So Charlottesville Women in Technology was an organization that we started about four years ago to really build community 
and support and resources for women and girls in technology. So we have two parts of the organization, Tech Girls, which runs programs in elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools to keep girls interested in technology as a profession and to give them a sense that, yep, it's okay. There are other women in technology, definitely something you can pursue. And we have the women in tech side of it, which is really about supporting women who are past their you know, um, high school and college years and are in the professional um, arena. In many cases, it's to connect the women who are already in technology and give them support groups, continue their education. Um, but it is also, and I see this increasing increasingly, more, incre- I'm totally saying that wrong, but you know, um, on a more frequent basis, that it is also about connecting women who are interested in getting into technology and giving them a safe entry in. You mean as a, like maybe a career change? As a or? career change, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we definitely have a group that um, of of individuals who are already in the profession and just looking to network and um, and and learn more and and find a set of individuals that they can really belong with. And it's become a place where women who are interested in moving into technology can get connected and figure out the pathway to get there. So. That's excellent. And I know this past year, November, you had your first like big day summit, which was designed to talk about both the challenges in the industry, but also give um, a clear way forward, mm-hmm. including you know, resume building workshops, et cetera. I know that because we were a part of it and proudly so. What do you have uh, planned for this year? We actually have a planning session coming up in the uh, this Sunday, so I will have more information for you um, after that. But um, we definitely are going to continue some of our most popular programs this year. So we have a book club um, that runs about every other every other month, and that has gained an enormous amount of traction. Um, but we're also looking to expand this idea of. How do we create the connections and pathways for women to enter technology? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happened at the summit is we laid a pretty the, our speakers in the morning laid a pretty good case for there is an economic need, particularly in Charlottesville, to make sure that we have enough technology talent to continue to fuel the startups like um, like you guys are wonderful startups here in um, the um, t- in the Charlottesville area to continue to drive the technology companies that are here. Um, they can't be here if we don't have the right talent. And we are never going to have enough talent if we don't get more women into technology. And so we're looking at how do we create, we we think we can play a, a, a role in helping to, to bridge women who are interested in coming into technology. So whether they want to... Um, whether they're coming in from a different um, uh, career, um, which we see quite often, or whether or not they're actually coming back into the workforce. And I think that there's a lot of possibility there. But getting them um, a pathway to how do you get that training and then how do you get in, get experience at some of the firms like, um, like you know, CFA Institute um, or others in the community and then really create a career. So we're hoping we're going to continue to build on some of these ideas um, through this year. We will also continue to have um, our uh, monthly meetups where we encourage women to come. We always have panels and discussions where we, again, can showcase women who are already in the field. Um, we had um, some on data analysts last year, and um, we also talk about people who have made the transition. So we give all of that exposure as well. Great. Yeah. And I think um, 
it's yeah, it's it's about empowering at the level of the individual, but also I was curious as um, a, a CIO and someone who's led diversity initiatives at CFA, if you could uh, speak about how um, you personally have addressed kind of the structural biases, right? Because I think the classic argument uh, in some organizations I've worked at when I've brought up these um, issues, whether it's along gender lines or uh, ethnic background, the recruiting department would always say, well, th- these are the applicants we mm-hmm. get. It's not like we're trying uh, to only hire one group or another. And I would point out like, but the places that you are recruiting from yeah, for already sure. have a disproportionate representation. So you're just reinforcing yep. the bias. So yep. I'm just curious about how we break through to yeah. the next side. Well, I think Starless Women in Tech is a perfect example of that. Like, So I do a lot of my recruiting at those meetings. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, mean, I think that you create this network, you get to know, you know, where are the women in the industry? And in some cases, um, you know, we don't um, have enough women in the industry. So how do we, how do we get how do we get them in? And and you can't wait sometimes for, you know, the, the sixth graders to, you know, right. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, that's going to happen and I hope it does. And we we're putting our bets on the, uh, you know, I kind of call it the short game and the long game, right? Like we're definitely committed to the long game, but the short game has got to happen too. So, you know, where are you, um, you know, opening up the doors for people who maybe want to have a career change. And we were, we were just talking before we came in here that, you know, one of the things that I've been discussing with my, HR leaders is an apprenticeship program Mm -hmm. because, you know, we need to create the opportunity for individuals to come in maybe with not all of the experience that someone else has, but come in with some, some education and then we help grow them. Um, And I think we will have a lot of success if we can make that happen. But yeah, you got to get out of your normal places to recruit. Like you got to start getting out in the community. You got to start finding where people are at. You can't use the traditional, you know, routes. You got to get creative. You have to start thinking too that not everybody's technology pathway looks the same. You know, so as an example, you know, you might have some really talented people in your organization right now. I have a wonderful woman who uh, works for me who's um, been coming up through our QA department. And we've been talking to her about, hey, you know what, you have a lot of skills that maybe would translate into a role in development. Are you interested? Can we get mm-hmm. you interested? You know, I think a lot of these people haven't been tapped on the shoulder before, you know, and say, Hey, I think I see the possibility in you. Are you interested? And then set up the program to help them. So some of the talents in their organization, frankly, yeah, just got to create yeah, the pathway. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Do you have any questions? Yes. So you've seen all these different changes happening over the years. Um, is there anything that strikes you as the biggest change or impact since you started CWIT and, and changes you've observed even either within your own department and company or just the type of uh, talent that has been coming through the networking process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one thing I'm seeing is a lot more of it. So more people raising their hand to say, okay, yeah, I think I, c- I could do this. I am interested in it. I think those, the the sort of the, the bands are coming off, right? The, the, the traditional things that have kept people back are, are starting to kind of fall away. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's, we've got a long way to go for sure. There, there's no doubt about that, but I see that a lot more. I see a lot more of, Hey, I'm interested. And, 
um, you know, I see a lot more people asking, you know, um, to get women involved. And um, so I think we're starting to, it seems like the ball's starting to roll. And now we, you know, we want to clear the way so it keeps rolling and can roll faster. Well, I'm happy to hear that and excited. I want it to keep rolling faster too. Me too. Well, it's an exciting, um, it's exciting to see that. And, um, you know, I think really we we're at the cusp of something great. And I think, um, Charlottesville could really be a model for lots of other communities in, um, in, in across the country, uh, particularly, I mean, Charlottesville is not, um, you know, it's got its unique elements to it, but it's still a small community. And there are a lot of small communities across the nation who have been impacted by the fact that, you know, so many, so much of the talent, um, you know, sort of drains into like big cities. And great, we need talent in big cities. And that's fantastic. And that's awesome. But we also, I think, can develop talent in these smaller communities and create some of what we have in Charlottesville. So I think that, um, you know, we could be a bit of a model if we can get it right. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's countless articles coming out and, um, very popular panel discussions at conferences about the shortage of cybersecurity skills. Mm -hmm. Like it's the, Mm -hmm. you know, the industry's not going anywhere and the need is growing exponentially and there are not enough people to fill the positions. And, Often I, I'm not there, but I want to ask, or maybe you're just not looking hard enough. Like maybe you're just not looking in the right places. Maybe yeah. those people are there. Um, so for the apprenticeship, is that uh, apprenticing internally, such as the case of the, the specialist in QA, or are we talking um, sort of the classic internship model where you try to go out, find them, and then and see what they can do and sort of cultivate them up yeah. through the organization? I think could be both. And, um, you know, what I think we'll have to do is try it and see what works, you know, what works best. But I, th- I mean, at this point, we're thinking it could be either Great. or both. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that is uh, all the time that we have for today. So thank you very much for coming in. It was a thrill to have you here. And I'm sure we'll uh, have more conversations about how we can stay involved with what. Well, we appreciate your support so far. It's been wonderful to have you guys um, helping us and being involved. And we're super excited and it's an honor to be here. So thank you very much. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, Elaine Chang. So verdict is in. She is incredible. Agreed. Um, If you are listening and you are a financial advisor or you're thinking of getting your CFA certification, uh, head on over to the CFA Institute. They're doing great work uh, on establishing standards um, for ethics and for best practice in the financial service space. And as we wind down this episode, just checking in with the news stories that we are following. So uh, principally at the front of our minds is uh, last week's breaking story about uh, U.S. Air Force intelligence specialist, Monica Witt being charged with spying for Iran after defecting. Um, And inside that story, uh, I think is the more interesting element is her work for the Revolutionary Guard consisted of building target packages of other people who could be recruited or leveraged for intelligence. And in so doing, part of that plan was to use fake Facebook accounts to reach out to colleagues. So clearly that is a slightly newer wrinkle to this type of story, but I think speaks volumes to the power of social media to be used to gain trust. 
The story sounds like the plot of a TV crime drama. Yes. Um, this would be one of those cases where, you know, is it life imitates art or art imitates life? But the, the reality is a perception of trust is all it takes, really. The other stories we are following are the New York Times investigation into the increased rate of attacks from Chinese and Iranian uh, groups against U.S. companies. So this is key. We're out of the geopolitical realm and we are straight to the core of what we do as a business, um, that our clients are seeing an increase in uh, cyber espionage, trying to get at IP um, trying to steal trade secrets to advance their interests or and or disrupt their interests. So um, I think a lot of the typical industries are on the target list, aerospace, telecom, electronics, kind of the big uh, manufacturing. But I think I think AI is on China's most recent five year plan also. So uh, yeah, any new and emerging technologies are up for grabs. Yeah. So with that, we'll leave you this week, but we will return in two weeks time during RSA with uh, an interview with our very special guest, Laura Galante. All right. We will see you then. Until then, continue to drive business forward without fear. 